And uh, so, all right, we want to get into the Word of God this morning. Uh, time has motored on on us, and uh, it's a good time of praise and worship. Come with me, please, to the 10th book of the Old Testament, uh, book of Second Samuel, and the 11th chapter. Second Samuel chapter 11, we'll let you find let you find that. We'll begin reading together in a moment. Now in the gallery of notorious woman of the Bible that we have been looking at hangs the portrait of Bathsheba. And even though she wasn't wicked like Jezebel, or as devious and cunning as Delilah, and even though she wasn't as blatant as Potiphar's wife, or a harlot like Rahab, yet there is a certain notoriety about her. And for that reason, she does deserve her place in this infamous gallery. Now this illicit and foolish affair that she had with King David Although probably not premeditated, nevertheless, it ended in much hurt and pain and even death to her firstborn and to her husband. And also, it left a damning blot on the record of Israel's greatest king. So after 3,000 years, that record still stands. If there is one story in the Bible that ought to warn us of the dangers and the consequences of infidelity, surely this story of David and Bathsheba is it. So let's begin to read then from chapter 11 and from verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him. Joab was his top general. And all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon, besieged Rabab. But David remained at Jerusalem. Time of the year was spring. Long winter is now past. Sun is heating up the ground. It's time... Wars began, springtime and autumn time was a time when they fought their battles. And, excuse me, this thing is really troubling me today. If it had bigger ears, it would be better. I would hold it on. Say, David, your ears are big enough. And so it was time to go to war again. And David, at this point in his life, was in his early to mid-50s. He had enjoyed an unparalleled time of success, probably the last 15 to 17 years. And with God's help, won every battle he fought, was very, very prosperous. And I suppose this was the heyday of his uh, political life and his kingship. And... At this time of the year, there was a battle against the people of 
Ammon, and they were winning the battle very well indeed. In fact, so much that the Ammonites now had retreated uh, into their capital city, Rebab, and they were being besieged by the Israelites. And for whatever reason, and we can't be sure, but it's a very telling statement that David remained in Jerusalem. Major mistake. He didn't know it, but that was the beginning of his downfall. In fact, what was to happen next, David would never fully recover from. There are never any more record of any more exploits that David did after this incident. Perhaps he remained at Jerusalem because maybe he felt, well, I've got the best army in the world. I've got the greatest warriors and generals. They're winning the fight anyway, and so let them just keep at it. What do they need me for? Maybe he didn't go because maybe he felt, well, you know, I've done a lot of campaigns when I was younger, and I'm in my mid-50s, and actually I've kind of had it with battle and war, and I really don't need to be there. Perhaps that's what he felt. Or maybe he had just grown soft because of his prosperity and his success over many, many years, and felt, well... It's time just to kick back and take it easy and not get too excited because we're just going to win this battle anyway, so why should I bother? And so for maybe all of those reasons, who knows, he did not go to battle. He remained still at Jerusalem, and that was a major, major mistake because look what happens. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now after his afternoon siesta, he rose up mid-afternoon, early evening, went up onto his roof, the lovely cooling spring breezes would be blowing, surveying his city, Jerusalem, the one that he had many years previously had taken from the Jebusites and claimed it as the city of the people of God. In fact, it become known as the city of David. And he was probably just viewing out his city. I, I've stood on top of the Spanish steps in Rome. There's a big balcony up there, and you can look out over the whole city of Rome. It's such a marvelous sight to see. The Romans call it the eternal city. I've been up the tower in the Cathedral of Seville. There's a big tower beside it. When you go up there, you get a 360-degree view of the whole city of Seville, which is beautiful with ancient and modern buildings. And so David was just up there surveying uh, the city and the setting sun of the evening. Then all of a sudden, he sees Bathsheba bathing. Now her apartment must have been fairly close to the palace because she was easily within sight of David. And you almost feel at this point, if you've been standing there with him, say, David, please look away now. He couldn't help the first look, but he could help the second look and the third look and the lingering look.
I don't think that was premeditated on Bathsheba's part. I don't think that she was deliberately trying to catch the eye of the king. But we must say that she was very, very immodest. We must say that she was foolish at the least. To do that in full view of the palace was asking for trouble. And you almost feel like saying to Bathsheba, Bathsheba, why do you do this? Do you not realize that somebody could see you? But now he sees her. Look what happens. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, this story is bad on so many levels. And right here it takes a terrible turn for the worse. Some writer said that at this moment, an unholy fire began to rise up in his soul and he didn't dampen it. And right here and now, he has broken the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. And once you break one commandment, you're very prone to breaking another one. And he's about to break the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's really done it with his eyes. And as we go on in the story, you'll see he broke the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. But having broken that one, first one, tenth, it's easy to go down the slippery slope, isn't it? Uriah the Hittite was one of his most trusted most faithful, most courageous soldiers he had. He was one of David's elite guard. There was 37 mighty men. Uriah the Hittite was one of them. Out there in the battlefield, risking his very life for king and country. David should have been out there with them. He should have been on the battlefront. Instead, he's on the balcony. Now he's caught. He makes inquiries. They say who it is. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. Now, an invitation to the palace was not one that could be turned down easily, be disrespectful. And at this point, to give Bathsheba the benefit of the doubt, she probably had no idea in the world why she was being sent for. for. So she goes. But when she gets there, conversation ensues. We don't know what was said. But probably he greatly flattered her and probably told her that he had seen her that morning and that afternoon 
from his balcony and how beautiful she looked. And at that moment, Bathsheba had a great decision to make. Now, we could say that what could she do about this? She was only a woman. He was a king. And in those days, kings wielded all power and all authority. Whatever they wanted, they got. But remember whenever we did the story of Esther and how that Queen Vashti, how that when her husband, Ahasuerus, the king, how that he wanted her to parade before all of his drunken cronies, that she said, absolutely not, no way. And she lost her throne because of it. Could have lost her head. So Bathsheba did have a choice. She could have turned around and said something like this. She could have said, oh, king, live forever. But how could I do this? My husband, your servant, he's out on the battlefield. He's one of your most faithful, loyal soldiers. This, we cannot do this. It would be such a dishonor to him. And it would be a disgrace upon your king and kingdom. She could have said a whole lot of things. But nothing. Maybe she was flattered. Her husband was out on the campaign. Maybe felt lonely. Not every day a king would send for you. And after all, look at all the beautiful women he's got. He had several wives. He had dozens of concubines, which he shouldn't have had, by the way. Palace was filled with beautiful women. You know, she must have felt very flattered indeed that David desired her. Maybe she was drawn to the power and the prestige of the whole event. You know, when you, whenever you look at some of the, the matches you see on television, you wonder, well, how in the world? You see some of those politicians, and you look at their wives and their mistresses, and you think, it doesn't add up, does it? And then you think, wait a minute. There's an attraction with power. There's an attraction with wealth. You remember the story? Remember, it was true how that, remember years ago, Paul Daniels, the, the magician, at one time he was the biggest star on television, and well, what can we say? Well, he, he was hardly Brad Pitt, was he? I mean, he, you know what I mean? Like, and then he got this beautiful wife, Debbie McGee. She was a blonde bimbo type, and you know, and it was hard to put the two together. Remember, whenever she was being interviewed, interviewed on a chat show by a comedian, and she made that famous statement. Well, <laughs> Debbie McGee, what first attracted you to the millionaire Paul Daniels? <laughs> well, this is the king of Israel. Maybe she yielded too readily and too easily and succumbed to this. So she came to him and he lay with her. And then notice it says, for she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. Holy Spirit adds that little line in that she was cleansed for her from her impurity. That's why she was bathing, by the way. That tells us two things. First of all, not to put too fine a point upon it, but 12 times a year she'd have to perform this ritual because at those times she would be ceremonially unclean. 
And that lets us know that we know for sure who is going to be the daddy of this child because of this illicit union, because this was immediately after that. Also lets us know that she was very well aware of the law, very well versed in the law. She did according to the law. By the way, in Leviticus, if a man and a woman lay together, they were to immediately bathe after it according to the law because temporarily they'd be ceremonially unclean. That was the law. Don't ask me to explain that to you, but that was the law. She was very, very well versed with that. So she knew the law. So she also knew Leviticus 20.10. That to do this was worthy of death. And then afterwards, she went back to her house. Now probably at that point, that's all she would have thought and David would have thought, deed's over, go back to your house. He's had his way, never sent for me again. And probably that's what both of them actually thought and felt and meant to happen. And so she would go back to her house with her guilty secret. He would carry on as usual. He was a king. He had many wives, concubines. This was just another one he had had his way with. So what? But it gets worse, doesn't it? She returned to her house and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Ah, not what they had planned. Not what they had thought was going to happen. Now, there's a major, major problem here. And David immediately recognizes what the problem is. And he's going to try everything in his power to get out of it. And David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And so he makes some small talk, pretending his interest in what's happened in the battlefield. I'm sure Uriah wondered, well, why in the world are you sending for me? Joab's the one. He's the head man here. Why are you sending for me? He must have been wondering, what's going on here? This is unusual. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. It's a polite way of telling him, listen, you've been, you've been out of town for a while. You know, you must have missed your wife. Mr. Companionship. You don't have to rush back, actually. You've given this report. Now, just go back. Just go and see your wife. Go, go and wash your feet. Have a nice meal together. So Uriah departed from the king's house with a gift of food from the king followed him. Now, this was, a, this was a high honor. For the king to send food from his table to somebody's home, that was a high honor. So he's doing everything in his part to entice Uriah to go to the house. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants of the, his lord and did not go down to his house. Here's a man with integrity. Here's a faithful, loyal soldier. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did not you come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my Lord Joab and the, and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, 
And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Ah, now David's in the pickle now, isn't he? Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also and tomorrow, and I will let you depart. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Huh. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Uriah the Hittite had more integrity and morality and being blind drunk than David had stone cold sober. And that shows you how far David has slipped spiritually at this point in his life. Many years later, his son Solomon was to write these words. And I wonder, was he thinking about his dad at the time? In Proverbs 6, 27, it says, Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And away over in Proverbs 28 Verse 13, he who prospers his sins will not prosper. Sorry, he who covers his sins will not prosper. And whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so this is getting bad now. He's tried everything in his power. Uriah's having none of it. And then what happens is probably the lowest point in David's life, you can hardly believe what you're going to read. A man of God would do such a despicable thing. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Let Uriah set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Think about it. David has written this man's death warrant and he put it right into the hand of the one who was going to die. Uriah carried to the battlefield his own death warrant and he didn't even know. That's how despicable and wicked this act is before God. You can see how in a moment how God was very displeased. But this is the one thing about the Bible. In all of its heroes, it tells you about the warts and all. It doesn't hide anything. There's nothing airbrushed. It's right there for us to read, for us to learn from. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew where, where there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite also. So not only did David cause the death of Uriah the Hittite, one of his top soldiers, but several of his top soldiers with him died at this point. And Job was concerned about that, by the way. 
And Joab sent and told David all things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that, that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Because that's the news that he really wanted to hear. And Joab was smart enough to know when you tell him that, it doesn't matter who's died as long as he's dead. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. And we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. That was the most dangerous place the most guarded place. Then the archers shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. For he, he, these words are going to come back to haunt this man. Remember what he said. Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as the other, which he himself is going to find out very soon. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. And so, job done. Dead man can't speak. Your eyes out of the picture. Nobody to tell the tale. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Mm. I wonder what kind of mourning that was. Now, I don't suppose for one moment that she knew what David had just done. All she knew was her husband had died in the battlefield. Probably that was news that most women whose husbands was on the battlefield, even to this day, dread to hear. There's a good possibility that one day you're going to hear it. But I wonder when she heard that news at that moment in her life, I wonder was it just sheer relief? Sheer relief. Might have been mixed with a little bit of sadness, but sheer relief. Because now she's not going to be found out. Her husband's never going to know he's dead. See what David does next. He acts very quickly, doesn't he? And her mourning was over. That would be about seven days. David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Almost with undue haste. He was covering all his tracks. He was making sure all the bases were covered. Now nobody would suspect. All right, people seen her coming to the palace. They seen women coming out and then all the time and maybe the household staff would have a good idea but I mean, they're just the household staff but... You see, if, if his generals had have found out that while they were at the battlefront laying their lives down for him and he was sleeping with their wives, you could imagine that would have been the end of his great army. Might have been the end of his reign right there and then. There would have been a, a rebellion against him. But he's covered his tracks. Everything's fitted into place. He rises out of the picture. Legally, she's his wife, along with the other wives. Nobody's going to say anything anymore. And the little boy's born. 
Who's going to know? See what it says next? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David said to Joab, don't be displeased. But the Lord was highly displeased. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And you could add greatly to that. So, about a year passes. Nobody's any the wiser. Everything's hunky-dory as we say. Except that it isn't because God's displeased. And God gives David a full year to hold his hands up and to repent and say, Sorry, Lord, and make a confession. But he doesn't. Why is it so hard to repent and confess? Why do all of us find that so hard to do? Because we do. All of us try to hide our sins and our faults and our failures. We don't want to own up to that. David was no different. But God gave him a long, long time to think about it. In fact, if you read Psalm 51, David's prayer of repentance, after this incident we're going to read, you'll find that during that time, it was a very uncomfortable time for him. Because he had to hide that great sin. He had to hide adultery. He had to hide murder. And he reads Psalm 51, and you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 38, you'll see some of the feelings he was going through, and it was far from pleasant. Yeah, he put a smile on his face. Everything seemed okay on the outside, but on the inside, it was eating him up. But he still wouldn't confess. So God sends the prophet Nathan. Prophet Nathan was a great friend of David. Tremendous friend. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, this took a lot of courage by the way, there were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one, one little ewe lamb which he had brought nourished which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man. Well, that day on the balcony, a traveler came to David. A thought, a wicked thought. A traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. You see, he was a shepherd. So God knew how to really, really, really put the screws on him here. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. And I honestly believe that that was a very tender, poignant moment in that room. Nathan loved this man with all of his heart. 
but he hated his sin. And God hated his sin. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And I think that when Nathan spoke to him, I don't think he shouted at him. I don't think he screamed at him. I think with tears in his eyes and with tenderness in his voice, he says, David, you are the man. And at that moment, David broke. But listen, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would also have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Remember what David said to Joab, the sword devours one as well as the other. Well, he's about to find out how true that is. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of all men. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun." What a pronouncement. What judgment. Must have shook David to his core. His legs must have went like jelly. And they must have felt faint. Trying to take in what God's saying to him. And all of it was true. And all of it happened. The sword never left his house to the very day he died. For the next 15 or 20 years... Trouble in his family just about wore the man out completely. Let me tell you what happened. You remember he had several wives and concubines. His daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother David's son, Amnon, and then despised by him. And Absalom, Tamar's brother, another son of David, he was so angry at this and he bided his time to have his vengeance on his brother, his half-brother. What does he do? Two years later, he gets him killed. And having done that, knowing the word's going to go back to his father, he runs and hides with his grandfather in another country for three years. And when he's away, David's missing him. David was a great king. He was a fantastic poet. He was a highly creative man. He was a very courageous king, very prosperous. But he was a very bad father. He was an awful father. No parenting skills whatsoever. None. Useless as a father. And instead of punishing what they had done, he lets them off. Well, what could he say? What sort of example had he given? And that's the trouble. If we don't set a standard, what standards are kids got? So Joab talks to David and he talks to Absalom knowing how David felt and long story short, got Absalom to come back 
And when Absalom came back, David wouldn't let him into the palace. Wouldn't bother with him. It had nothing to do with him. Absalom had to go live somewhere else. And you know what? Absalom despised him. Absalom was a very handsome big man. Beautiful hair. In fact, his hair was just such a feature. I mean, he just was one of those standout type of people. And it says that he gathered the men of Israel around him, stole their hearts, in fact, and plotted against his own father to take his throne from his own father. Again, long story short, David had to go into exile, had to run from his own son who wanted to kill him. And then when he was there and he heard that Absalom was wanting to be king, something that warrior spirit rose up within him once more. And he gets his arm and he goes back. He starts to chase. And he says, now make sure you don't kill Absalom. He says, that's my son. Don't kill him. Should have killed him. But he says, don't kill him. But Joab made sure he did kill him. When his hair caught in the oak trees, he got speared. It broke David's heart. Sword wasn't leaving his house. And not only that, before Joab got killed during this uprising, Ahithophel, David's closest confidant, who happened to be Bathsheba's granddad, he took sides with Joab, and you know what he suggested to him, just as God would say? You know what he suggested? He says, Listen, just to disgrace your father, take all of his concubines, we'll build you a tent up on the roof here and go in on to them, lie with them in sight of all Israel. And that's exactly what Absalom did. And that just about broke David's heart, to think that his son would do that, to think that his closest confidant, Ahithophel, would side with his rebellious son and suggest that he would do that. The man that he says in one of the Psalms, we took sweet counsel together, we went to the house of the Lord together, he says, if I had been a friend, if I had been an enemy, I could have handled that. But he says, my own familiar friend has lifted up his head against me. It's an awful price to pay, isn't it, for a moment of passion. But somebody says, no great Christian can sin a small sin. Higher up in the public view you become, the greater your sin becomes when it's exposed, isn't it? Whew. But then look what happens. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. For the first time, Publicly, he's held up his hands and said, you're right. In Psalm 51 in this prayer of repentance, he says, against you only, you only have I sinned. Well, that wasn't technically true. Sure it wasn't, because he sinned against Uriah, killed him, sinned against his wife, Bathsheba, sinned against his own family, sinned against the nation. But all of that to David at this point was not the point. The point was, God, I have sinned against you. And that was true. And God was very displeased. But here is the mercy of God mixed with the judgment of God. 
Nathan said to David, immediately after he confessed, David says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You know, the law said he should have died, even though he was a king. Him and Bathsheba should have died. But the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Therefore David pleaded with God for the child, and he fasted and went into an inn and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose. The elders of his house arose and went to him and raised him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. God has said the child would die. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed her voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He will do some harm. Then David saw that his servants were whispering. David perceived that the child was dead. David therefore said to the servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. That's letting us know that he acknowledged before God that he was wrong and anything that came to him he fully and utterly deserved. You can read that in those Psalms I mentioned earlier. When God judges, he judges justly. Isn't it good, thank God, that not all illegitimate children die? Because there might be some of us in here or some listening to me that wouldn't be here today if that was the case. But this child did. Then he went to his own house and he requested and they set food before him and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is it that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Then he said these fantastic words, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, that is a big statement, probably more than we realize. You see, in the New Testament era, we're used to knowing about life after death and what happens because it's explained for us in the New Testament, the resurrection and so forth. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't just as clear as that. In fact, there's some strange views, even among Jews to this day, what happens after death. So for David to make this statement, this was a powerful statement he made. And it echoes what Job said. Job said, Though my very skin be eaten by worms when I die and I'm buried, yet in my flesh I shall see God, for I know that my Redeemer lives. <laughs> Powerful statement, given the context that they were saying it in. It's easy for us because we know we've got the New Testament. They didn't have that. Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, which means peaceful. Now the Lord loved him, Solomon that is, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and so he called his name Jedidiah, 
which means beloved of the Lord because of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've read that passage many, many times. But because of the context we're speaking in today, and because I had to look at it more closely, you know what I discovered? Because superficially, when you read that, you think that when the child died, and the first child that was born after that was Solomon. But actually, it wasn't. In fact, David and Bathsheba had four sons born after that. And Solomon was the fourth, the last. So, you're talking here probably, I mean, if she had one child in quick succession, it's at least, least four years and probably five, six, seven years before Solomon came along. And God said, I love this boy. This boy is destined for special things. Now, all of those children they had, you can read that in First Chronicles 3 and 5. You'll see the order there. All those children they had, no matter how good they were and how lovely they were and how nice little boys they were, but when Solomon came, God says, I'm going to favor this one. Not that he didn't like him, but this one here, I've got marked for special things. And it probably took several years before that happened. But in the end, after all of the heartache, and his heartache wasn't finished yet, by the way, here comes in the midst of all of that judgment, in the midst of all of that terrible thing, and there's more to come. Here is this little boy is born. And God sends the prophet and said, he's beloved of me. I love this one. And, and in that moment, David and Bathsheba knew this boy's special. God's marked this one for big things. And he had, and he did. Because Solomon did become great. The golden age of Israel under Solomon, at least the first half of it. second half wasn't so bright. But there he is. Is that the end of the story? No, not really. Just quickly, mention this quickly. He's an old man now. He's dying. All he can do is lie in bed. Married another wife, beautiful young woman, just to warm him, just to warm his body. Didn't say he lay with her. In fact, it specifically says he didn't, but just to heat him up. He's cold, shivering. Old man, done. He's about 70 now. Hope I'm not like that when I'm 70. <laughs> Sorry, I need to lie tight when I get to 70. <laughs> and while he's lying there another son Adoniah knowing that his father's about to die thinks hey I should be king of Israel so he takes it upon himself wanting to anoint himself king of Israel and he gets some encouragement from Joab and Abiathar the priest. And they have this big special do, big feast, celebration. You're going to be anointed king. David's lying in his bed, doesn't he know a thing about it? But she hears about it. She remembered the promise that David had made, which we haven't read, by the way, that David had made that Solomon would be the king of Israel. 
after him. So she gets Nathan the prophet. Nathan says, you go in and tell him that, and then I'll come in behind and back you up. And they told David. And David says, no, Solomon's going to be the king. Nathan says, well, you better hurry up. You better crown him quick, because they're going to crown Adonai down there. And so they crowned Solomon to be king of Israel. And when Adonai heard that, a great fear gripped his heart, and he ran. And sometime later, he said to Solomon, he says, and if I had mercy on me, I was wrong. And someone says, well, if you're going to be an honorable man, I'll spare you. But if not, but you better be an honorable man. Long story short, he did something after that that Solomon felt was dishonorable to him and to the kingdom. And Solomon had him killed. So here's David lying here in his bed. The sword never left his house to the very day he died. All for one moment of passion. Now do you see why this story is in the Bible? Now do you see the warning and the consequences and the stuff that can follow on? Thank God for his mercy, but sometimes we have to suffer the consequences of our mistakes and our sins. And that's why the story of Bathsheba and David is in the Bible. So that you and I can learn the lessons and we don't have to make the same mistakes. There's great forces and pressures come against us in life in all kinds of situations. And it's only by the grace of God and the strength of God that we can resist sometimes. But God has that grace and he has that strength for us. With every temptation, there is also a way of escape. That way may be able to what? To bear it. Amen? So there's the story of David and Bathsheba. A hard difficult story but a lesson that we ought to have well learned that we do not follow and make the same mistake. Amen? Let's pray.